Hello and welcome to Type 1 Planet, where we explore what a technologically advanced global civilization would need to look like in order to thrive sustainably for thousands of years. And in today's world of exponential technology, one of the most powerful forces shaping our society is undoubtedly social media. These are massive companies like Facebook, Twitter, or now X, and TikTok that now connect billions of people in ways that were unimaginable even a decade ago. And yet, as these platforms have grown, it's become clear that they can also amplify the worst in human discourse. Things like extremism, conspiracies, and outrage that spread faster and farther than ever before, leading to real instability in our foundational institutions then that allow structures like democracy to even exist. So to make sense of this complicated landscape, we're joined today by Tobias Rose Stockwell. He's the author of the acclaimed book, the Outrage Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Civil Society. And I had the pleasure of re listening to this book on Audible. It comes with a, a PDF on Audible that has a lot of incredible graph, uh, graphs and graphics and uh, diagrams that Tobias created for this book. So I highly advise getting the physical copy as well as listening to it, which uh, my physical copy is in the mail right now. And Tobias is a leading thinker and researcher in the space, and his insights on social media cuts to the core of the challenges that we're going to be facing. It's not just in journalism, it's not just in democracy, but actually in civilization itself. So in our discussion today, first we define a lot of key concepts that are used to understanding this issue, things like the Dark Valley and Moloch. Um, and then by establishing these conceptual frameworks, we can dig deep into the questions that are fundamental to understanding the long-term prospects of an advanced global civilization. How did social media become what it is today? What are the incentives that drive its worst outcomes? And most importantly, how can we create social technologies that bring out the best in humankind rather than the worst? So I'm really thrilled about this conversation. Uh, Tobias is an amazingly articulate person in this space, and he makes very complex ideas seem simple and understandable, which I really appreciated. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, if you have any feedback or questions or suggestions, please contact us at Type One Planet on social media or typeoneplanet.net uh, is our website. Looking forward to hearing from you and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Type One Planet, where we are making a working model of what a global civilization would need to look like in order to sustainably thrive for thousands of years into the future. And today we're exploring systems of mass instant communication, specifically social media how they've arisen on our planet the last couple of decades to talk about their design, how human beings engage with them and what they're doing to the structure of our civilization. So Tobias, thank you so much for joining us and bringing your wealth of experiences and ideas to this very complicated topic. Thanks so much for having me, Robert. I really appreciate it. Uh, so I read your book, um, Outrage Machine, How Tech Amplifies Discontent, Disrupts Democracy and What We Can Do About It. And I don't have a copy because I listened to it. Very good audiobook, but you do if you wanted to hold it up quickly and I'll, uh, perfect. It's an awesome book. Uh, the only thing that was difficult about not having it is in my hand is because of all the incredible, uh, diagrams and visuals that Tobias, you created for this book in the audiobook, There is a PDF, which I was able to use, but I'm going to get my hands on a physical copy to it. It looks like it's beautiful. Um, awesome. And so, um, today I'd like to begin, we're going to kind of go through many of these concepts in this book and, uh, I'd like to begin today with a little bit of definition and sense making around human psychology and behavior. And one of the, you know, human behavior and psychology powers everything that we're going to be talking about today. So this is going to be an important first step. Let's talk about first 
uh, a concept that comes from Richard Dawkins that you mentioned that is going to be very important to the structure of social media, which is memes, which is applying an evolutionary theory to ideas. So from your perspective, why did you bring the concept of a meme? Like what is a meme and why was it important? Uh, and how has the behavior of memes changed in the last couple of decades? So yeah, memes are this really kind of fascinating idea that uh, that was developed initially by Richard Dawkins uh, back in the 1970s in his famous book, uh, The Selfish Gene, uh, in which he found and, and made this very kind of uh, uh, compelling case for the ideas of the primary unit of information in uh, species of life being uh, genes, being uh, being single you know units of genetic information that are trying to replicate themselves and make themselves uh, more uh, more plentiful in the world and that that we as living creatures are primarily vehicles for uh, for genetic propagation um, uh, it was a very compelling book a very influential book uh, but he had this kind of subtext in the book of this 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 small little aside in the book in which he postulated that while genes, which are very definable and uh, and kind of uh, uh, seeable, right? We can we can really see genes right. um, uh, in our in our DNA, and we can see the lines of code that are in our DNA. He postulated that it's possible that we also uh, that that memes, being cultural information, might transit in the same way as genetic information, so that we might actually be uh, uh, carrying little bits of self-replicating code in the form of memetics and in the form of memes uh, that are that are trying to uh, reproduce themselves in our minds as opposed to in our bodies and through our bodies uh, so uh, so it was a it was a kind of a, a nifty thought experiment um, that he that he was uh, that he was embarking on <laughs> as a subtext of this of this you know very uh, very important work on genes uh, but it turned out to be a very uh, prescient and important uh, way of thinking about uh, information and ideas in our culture. So um, this has entered into the common lexicon of our of our uh, of our discourse through, you know, we think about a meme, we think about a, a funny little image with some text on it uh, that that, you know, has some kind of funny truth to it or some kind of um, biting uh, commentary about the world. But uh, but on their own, any unit of cultural information can promulgate and transit across our species and is looking for ways to replicate across our species, much like uh, a gene would. Uh, and uh, it, you know, a, a jingle from a from a from a, a, a serial commercial back when you were a kid, you know, that got stuck in your head like a little kind of uh, you know, a, a just running yeah. over and over again in your head. That was something that uh, that you, you can feel the kind of promulgation power of these memes, the replication power of these memes when they jump from head to head to head uh, and uh, through our media system. Uh, but it's been these it's, little mind viruses, right? Exactly. It's like, yeah. I was like, I can't get it out. Yeah, it's, right. it's really interesting. And, and once you apply them to these social media systems, these algorithms, all of a sudden they have that mass, like it's like dropping a virus on a crowded train or something like that, right? You know, it has such a higher ability to to cascade through our minds. Um, that's that's right. And the it's the origin of the word going viral, right? Like the idea of something going viral is actually the, the process of a, of a meme virally jumping between many, many, many humans and being successfully kind of 
propagated to the entirety of the population. Yeah. And uh, when you when you take that that lens to uh, how our information flows online, it becomes a little bit weird, right? Because you realize, oh wait, I actually might be kind of the vessel for these little viruses that are jumping from brain to brain. Yeah. Yeah, they're biological. We're biological systems carrying functions in our brain, you know, and we're passing these functions to other people. It totally right. is a virus. Uh, so we'll come back to virality. Um, another definition uh, that I might refer to is the concept of Moloch, uh, which originated from Allen Ginsberg's poem Howl, which is a fantastic poem. I highly recommend it. Um, and it's about why our behavior is driven by certain incentives, you know, the, and this relates to the prisoner's dilemma. Why did you bring up Moloch in the book and how does it apply to social media? Yeah. So uh, this this is citing uh, a, a really amazing uh, uh, a post um, article by Scott Alexander um, called Meditations on Moloch, in which he uh, basically goes through the the incentive structures that cause really problematic human behavior. Um, and, you know, you can it, you can go back back in time Moloch is this this biblical god uh that's uh that's i believe the, the canaanites would sacrifice their children to um and it's been it's been kind of this this reference point in in uh kind of religious texts and uh religious movements for a long time as being this kind of like this demon god um and scott alexander he he basically come he, he comes at it from a slightly different perspective and looking at it as a is a, a system of bad incentives that cause good people to do bad things. And uh, many of our tools today, many of our media incentives, many of our, uh, many of the worst kind of incentives of capitalism actually do end up creating really bad uh, outcomes for people that are well-intentioned. And if you have the wrong incentive structure in place, then you can actually make good people do bad things. Uh, a classic example of this is the prisoner's dilemma in which you can basically put two people in opposite rooms and give them a, a, a certain set of incentives. They will know that they are doing the wrong thing, but they will still do the wrong thing because it is in their best interest to do the wrong thing um, with, the, with, with worse outcomes for everyone. And that is kind of the core of, uh, of Moloch is this, this, this kind of idea that, that if you actually have badly designed systems and you have, if you have badly, even badly emergent systems, they can cause really substantially negative uh, outcomes for society writ large. Mm. And it's so interesting because like the prisoner's dilemma, they can't communicate and that's why they can't collaborate, right? That's right. But you pop them into social media and you give them that communication channel and we still struggle because people can't read each other's minds or their intentions. Um, so it'll be interesting to drop into that as well. Um, Thank you for that. That was, that was a, a beautiful explanation. And there's one last definition I want to do before we get into social media, which is the concept of a dark valley and uh, the dark valley of externality. What do you mean when you refer to this in the book? So the dark valley is this concept of, uh, of basically hidden harms that are, uh, that are present to us only well after we, uh, we adopt a new technology. So every time, if you look back in history, every time we've adopted a major new technology, there is this period of mass adoption and uh, mass consumption and mass usage of a tool in which it becomes widespread. Everyone becomes very excited about this thing. Um, and uh, in, in that process of mass adoption, there are also a, a large number of hidden harms, as, as in harms that are just obscured from view. People that didn't know about these harms in advance, um, you know, uh, 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 
people just didn't understand how bad things could be. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the printing press, I examined pretty closely in the book, and we might go into that in a little bit, but it caused, it was this incredible invention that allowed for the dissemination of uh, massive, uh, massive new quantities of information to people, uh, but also had this uh, cascading effect of confusion and chaos and violence that swept across the European continent um, and caused, you know, a hundred years of civil wars as a result. And we wouldn't want to go back and change the fact that we have this, the printing press, but it was there was this this dark valley of hidden harm that came in its wake. And you can look back at every major kind of media technology and see this period of of uh, of, of chaos and confusion and disruption and uh, and damage that comes as a result of these tools that are not clear to us when we are uh, when we're first using them. Uh, so, so it's, it's an important little valley. It's it's a, it's hidden because it as our as as the adoption goes up. Uh, uh, the thriving goes down actually for a period of time until we figure it out. And then we come out the other side uh, through some uh, process of industry intervention, uh, you know, moral panic, uh, you know, uh, uh, research on harms. And eventually we, we make it out the other side into a better place. But uh, many, many of our technologies have this dark valley. So here we are on the other side. I don't know if, if, if we're on the other side of anything of, of this valley in some ways with social media, it dropped into our lives, uh, just over, you know, two decades ago or, or less, you know, started to proliferate. And, uh, those ex, you know, those designs happened early on. There was of all kinds of intentions. And then we went through this period of massive exponential growth and, and everyone thought they were doing, would doing great. And now all of a sudden we're in that period that you're referring to of chaos and, uh, you know, we can see it. Everyone knows that there's something fundamentally wrong with the way that we live and communicate. Um, and, but we don't know, we can't put our fingers on it. We don't know how to fix it. So let's talk about how that stage all began. Um, and you referred to, you were around Chris Cox and the early team at Facebook and they had a vision for their platform and how it was going to change the world. And what was their diff, the difference between their vision of how Facebook was going to come and what was the actual outcome? You know, what did they think it was going to do? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the earliest days of social media, you might remember what it was like back then. Uh, it was a very heady and optimistic time. There were, uh, in, you know, incredible new opportunities for connection and, uh, and you know, uh, building, you know, building new, uh, new worlds of, of, uh, of uh, you know, of um, interaction with humans across great distances. Uh, you can you kind of suddenly see each other, uh, you know, in this much more intimate way, uh, you, you know, in terms of democracy, you might remember, you know, the Arab Spring and how powerful and uh, meaningful that was as a, uh, as a as a time and how, you know, Facebook and Twitter were media darlings uh, in that moment uh, when they were <clears throat> when they were trying to. Um, you know, when they're, when they're rolling out and that, you know, toppling dictators in the Middle East and many, uh, many of my friends that were early in, uh, uh, in, in, in tech, one of my uh, a good friend that was one of the first engineers at Twitter, I knew a number of people that were early at Facebook, uh, such as Cox, uh, there was this real palpable sense of optimism and ambition and, uh, and promise around these tools and what they could actually do to improve society and the world. Um, and the media and, you know, kind of the, the general messaging, uh, that we, we felt around that time was this great sense of optimism, real, you know, real promise for, uh, for what could come from these tools. Um, and it looked like in the early days, that was what was going to happen, right? It, it seemed like there was not these, these tools had nothing but upside, right. In a lot of ways, right. We, f we felt like, oh, cool. Like we have social media now we can, 
we can connect uh, uh, humanitarian projects, we can topple dictators, we can do all these incredible things with it. Um, but uh, it turns out, of course, that the truth is a bit more complex than that. Um, and that many of these same features that we found to be really powerful and important were actually also really problematic. Uh, and uh, and that could be used by bad actors to sow disc discord and discontent uh, in a way that's uh, that that we've come to see in, in recent years. Mm. It's it's interesting because Facebook you 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 say in the book that Facebook won the social media race you know early on by require and, and one of the ways that they did that was by requiring a level of verification you know uh, and th these basically what you know we're going from writing letters to each other to email. Where you, you you're always still having these direct connections. Maybe you can find someone on a website and find their email and contact them, but you didn't have these like mass open uh, uh, social kind of uh, 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 town squares. That's the word I'm looking for, where you can meet new people and really kind of like expand your network socially. And then Facebook was gave us this this verification. You know, you kind of had to be in some way a human being. You know, you and and. But there's a lot, and there's still a lot of debate around this verification standards in social media. So, but why didn't the concept of personal verification uh, persist or translate into meaningful outcomes in the way that those Facebook founders were expecting or hoping for? Yeah. So in the earliest days, there was this real, uh, you know, desire to make sure that Facebook did not turn into MySpace. Right. And you might remember Friendster and MySpace. These were the early uh, social media. The Wild uh, West, baby. So it was exactly, the Wild West. Exactly. Early days. <laughs> and it was, you know, those were, those were, you know, in many ways, Friendster uh, resembled Facebook a lot more than MySpace resembled Facebook. But Friendster had really bad technical infrastructure and it, 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 it became too popular too fast. And it was just, it was a constantly down. So people were looking for something more. And then MySpace came along uh, with this, this kind of wide open social graph. Literally everyone was within one degree of everyone else because as soon as you built a, an account, you were connected with this guy named Tom, who was one of the founders, and so your your social graph was automatically just uh, embedded in into the other into, into stranger social graphs, right? So, uh, and you also didn't need to be a real person; you could make a fake account for whatever. Um, and it exploded in popularity. It was incredibly, incredibly popular. People were on all the time, obsessed with it. Uh, and people kind of forget how popular and incredible MySpace was in that moment. It was just you know a huge cultural phenomenon. Um, but with no constraints in verified users, with no constraints in terms of connections, like real connections, uh, peep, and also it's funny enough there there was this code, this bug on the site that allowed for anyone to uh, build a profile and inject code, CSS code into the back end of the uh, or to the front end of the site, so that they could basically make their profile picture look like anything, or their profile uh, page look like anything. So you ended up with this kind of garish carnival like uh, environment in which you know. There's just crazy design. There was no consistency in fonts, and people, you know, put giant pictures and videos in their background, and it was just, it was just like a, a mess, an absolute mess. After, uh, after, but we were all learning how to code. That's no, right. We, we were all learning. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That was awesome. Many people's uh, first introduction to coding was was in uh, in, uh, in breaking MySpace. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, uh, and so, so it, you know, not having that kind of core uh, functional verification and and unified uh, 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 filter in how people engaged with the site and how people came into the site um, actually caused it to be, it's, it was basically its downfall. It, it caused it to be um, to become almost unusable because there was so much information and there was not integrity between real social 
uh, connections on the site as well. Mm. So when Facebook came along, you know, it, they rolled out in this, you know, famously slow way in which they required a, uh, a, a university email address to use it, um, which basically ensured that it was real, like that you were a real user, first of all, um, and that you were a high quality user because you, you know, started in Ivy League schools. So when they first started out, it was like, it was a, 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 a um, you know, a real hot item to have a Facebook account. It was like, oh, wow. Yeah. You have a Facebook account. Oh my gosh. When are they coming to my school? Right. And people felt kind of obsessed with this, this idea of like, oh, well, I'm going to get this thing. And once I get it, it's going to be this, this kind of, uh, very exclusive. Yeah. Ex exclusive item for me. And, and that was a really smart rollout strategy. It was just very, uh, very careful and methodical on how they rolled it out across different schools. Um, and they didn't scale faster than they could handle um, in terms of the bandwidth and the the technical infrastructure. And um, it, you know, it was years before it was open to the wider audience of, you know, your average human <laughs> that wanted to get on, you know, your average adult that wasn't a college person. Um, and uh, so the result of that was that it actually it had a high, it was a high fidelity social graph. It was actually people that tended to know each other in real life um, and have real connections. Uh, and Zuckerberg was, you know, pretty uh, ahead of the curve in noting that that was going to be a really valuable uh, asset, that, that real connections, real human connections were actually more important than any connections, right? Than just having a, um, a you know, a wide open network. So uh, that ended up being really valuable. And um, and they, they just carefully built on top of, you know, feature on top of feature on top of feature in this in this very methodical way to try to add and test for engagement and add and test for engagement and you know, it was it was a, a you know a masterclass in in how to build a, a company steadily uh, towards uh, uh, the right kind of um, uh, audience early in the early days at least. Um, so so it was high, high integrity early on, and that was its its real strength. And then more and more people are using it, and all of a sudden, the target audience for so many companies and so many kind of uh, structures in our society are on these platforms our attention is there and then and and our with that comes certain incentive structures and i'd love That's to get right. to the incentive structures of social media um why is it that when you take this kind of platform this kind of very cozy environment that you just described where people are hanging with people they love and talking and meeting some new people and having real close connections why does that change when you put in these incentive structures that totally. businesses uh, encounter. Why does yeah, extreme totally. and, and accurate inflammatory information enter into those cozy environments? So yeah, so in, in, starting in 2009, uh, there was a, a set of three different features that were launched. Uh, and they were launched both by Twitter and by Facebook um, separately at different times that did fundamentally shift this kind of you know, this place for friends and turn it into a place for sharing information actively and sharing news and sharing media and sharing ideas and, and most importantly, sharing opinions. Um, and so this, this, the, the first feature, uh, was the algorithmic feed. So it's the ability to rank order content based on algorithm. So having a feed that isn't just reverse chronological, it's a feed that, um, that we are all familiar with that is ranked for engagement and for meaningful social interactions specifically at Facebook. Um, I came up with this this uh, this algorithm for basically determining how likely you were to find a piece of content valuable, um, and they called it meaningful social interactions (MSI) uh, for short. And um, it was a uh, a very successful algorithm in just rank ordering content and determining uh, you know you don't want your 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 important friends post to get lost 
amongst the baby pictures or the banal, you know, kind of garbage posts of your friends. So having a ranking algorithm makes a lot of sense. We produced suddenly too much information on these platforms. So they needed a way of rank ordering that content. But it turns out that a certain type of content tended to stick to the top of our feeds more than other types, which was morally outraged content. So the type of content that makes us angry, if, if we're, if, you know, if I'm fighting with someone about something, uh, that actually hits a lot of those uh, check marks for what the algorithm was looking for um, in terms of importance, in terms of MSI, in terms of meaningful social interaction. So mm. if my friends are angry about something and, and arguing about something publicly or arguing with a stranger publicly, then that seems like actually an important object that should be stuck to the top of the feed that you should see first. And so uh, so when that was rolled out, um, that, that was one step in this process of kind of increasing the temperature on these platforms and making them more... Uh, more kind of contagious to outrage and more more strangely um, uh, emotional than they were were before. Uh, the next feature, um, and I'm not saying these in order because they were rolled out in different orders uh, across both uh, Facebook and Twitter. But Facebook and Twitter kind of ended up in this interesting game in which you know Twitter would launch a feature and then Facebook would copy it, um, and then Twitter started a feature and Facebook would copy it. And so there was you know Facebook has been a great uh, kind of uh, um, uh, thief of, of good Shameless. ideas, right? Shameless, Shameless thief of good ideas. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, if they can't, you know, if they can't uh, build themselves and they'll buy, they'll buy the company, which is what happened with Instagram as well. Right. So the, the next feature, which is something that we're all familiar with is, uh, the, the, uh, the rollout of, uh, social metrics, which is the visible likes, the visible follows, the visible shares that are, um, all that are attached to each one of our comments. And, you know, suddenly having these, these numbers, uh, attached to our to our our content did strange thing. You know, Justin Rosenstein, who is the creator of the like button, he famously said, "I wanted to make positivity the path of least resistance," um, which you know that sounds great on the surface. Like, how, you know, it's a good signal for developers. A thumbs up is better for uh, for for uh, for me. It's cheap for me to give, um, but it's very meaningful to receive from a friend, right? Um, uh, it's, it's a, it's a great signal for determining what you actually like versus what you're actually watching. So, so it's, it's more, you know, it's, it's egalitarian. It's a way that you don't need to, you don't need to rely on gatekeepers to determine what people are actually liking. You can actually just see what the, you know, like a voting, you know, you can see how, how your, your friends are voting for, uh, for the good content, uh, that's in the system. And that was really, uh, really valuable, but it turns out that did something very strange to us, which is that it actually started to train us, um, to post content and to uh, to rate content in this competitive, strange new social environment. Um, so there's a famous uh, a famous set of experiments back in the 1930s by B.F. Skinner, um, uh, in which he took uh, rodents and he put them into boxes and he flashed a light. And if and there was a there was a paddle, a little button that the rodents could press when the light flashed. And if the light flashed and the rodents pressed the button, they would receive a food pellet. Um, and uh, so he was training these rodents. So light flashes, food uh, buttons pressed, food pellet comes out. He was training these rodents to actually um, to, to to press these buttons. But what he found was that if the rodents consistently got rewards each time they pressed the button and the light flash or with the flight flash, you know, <laughs> flight, light flash and they pressed the button, if they if they uh, if they got consistent rewards from that, the rodents would get sated and they would kind of bored and they they'd stop pressing that button. They'd be like, ah, that's cool. I, I know I can get the the food when I'm. Uh, when I'm hungry, but if he added a randomness, if he actually added some level of of uh, of kind of inconsistency in how often the button produced the uh, the food, the the rodents went a little bit insane. They actually went kind of crazy and got obsessed with the the process of pressing the button to get the food. They would try to figure out the pattern. 
And it turns out, um, this is called an operant conditioning chamber. And it turns out that humans, uh, you know, all mammals, <laughs> many animals, birds, even, uh, that we have this, we have this programming, um, uh, responding very strongly to intermittent variable rewards, which is rewards that have a slightly random payout to them, um, cause us to become obsessed with them. And there's an industry that has done this very well in the past that figured this out before social media, which is, uh, you can put people in a giant room, fill it with slot machines, uh, <laughs> more like flashing lights and you press a single button. That's the only thing they do. And they will, they will spend fortunes and spend, uh, you know, days of their life and, and they're just trying to press the button. And that's that it makes sense in an evolutionary sense for us to, uh, to do that. We're looking for pattern matching, you know, for, for ancestors trying to find berries in a, in a forest, uh, you know, if you find, you know, you find some berries in one bush, but you don't find them in the other bush and you still want to keep, uh, keep looking for the the pattern, try to figure out what it is, where I can actually find these berries. And so, um, so there's a, there's an evolutionary foundation to that, but it turns out when you put likes on our comments, uh, or on our posts, then it actually trains us in much the same way because we post something and there's the sudden flood of metrics that come to us or they don't. And that randomness is very addictive for us. And it's also bathed in this social, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, this, this social confirmation from our friends. So it actually causes us to be even more attentive to what we're posting. It's like, it, this is, you know, incredible, uh, incredibly addictive product um, of, of posting amongst our friends and becoming obsessed with the return. And I, I think this principle also applies to the way that we consume media because you you know, you're going, you're just like, all right, I'm, I'm just going to keep scrolling until I find that one post that makes me feel good. You know, <laughs> like, right, like, oh yeah, right. I, I breathed heavily out my nose at this meme, you know, that wasn't quite a laugh. Right. And then it's like, all of a sudden, like you said, you've been down that hole for 40 minutes and you're like, what, where the hell am I? What corner of the internet am I in? Where am I? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating thing to experience. We all go through it now with our social That's right. media. That's right. And then, yeah, then the, the final, uh, the final feature set, uh, that was, that was rolled out was the, the single click share, which is the ability to, to, uh, click a, a, a button and share with all of your social graph. Um, so Twitter, uh, did this in the form of the retweet initially, um, uh, which famously by one of the engineers that designed it felt like when he designed it, he said, I think we're, we're, we're handing a loaded gun to a five-year-old and which when he rolled that, he's like, I don't think that this is actually going to be a good thing. I think this is actually going to be a problem. Um, and, uh, that it turned out to be, I think fairly accurate in terms of our ability to spread information virally to our friends, um, across our, our social graphs, that single click share, um, which was rolled out at Twitter and then at Facebook, um, a few years later was it just dramatically changed the uh, the speed and spread of, of viral information in our networks. Mm -hmm. It just it totally uh, upended our ability to to make sense of the world because we, we it, it increased the velocity of information so dramatically. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about those the, those viral I want I, those viral events and I, and I want to talk about start with clickbait and you said clickbait is a viral scourge that facilitated the race to the bottom of the internet. So I, I know how you feel about it. <laughs> um, and uh, there was actually one concept that really fascinated me. You talked about scissor splitting ideas. Uh, scissor statements, yeah. Scissor statements, right. And they're perfectly calibrated to divide groups to maximize engagement. Like it, you, And we've seen this where there's a video of someone speaking, and maybe it's political, and it seems like 100% of the people who stand for that statement will share the video and 100% of the people who stand against that statement will share the video right. so they can make their points about it, right? And it's perfectly dividing those groups but and you can only tell the difference between those groups by like what they're saying about the video. Like 
this is the best thing ever. This is the worst thing ever. Right. Um, and the same goes for clickbait. You know, we have these mechanisms like A-B testing and, and effective engagement testing. Uh, tell us a little bit about what those mechanisms do to the way that we engage with media slash don't engage with media as in actually read the articles or <laughs> whatever sure. it is. Yeah, totally. So the, these three changes that happened to our media landscape, our social media landscape, uh, they didn't just stay on social media. They actually ended up transiting to traditional media in a very big way. Uh, you know, entrepreneurs, media entrepreneurs uh, saw that there were eyeballs on social media and many more eyeballs on social media than were on traditional media. And uh, so they started making media for social media uh, specifically in um, so you can think about these changes as sort of like a, a change to the physical landscape of our media environment, right? It's actually like a change to the physical landscape. It, it made, you know, certain uh, it was certain suit, new suit highways available to uh, to people to traverse um, that old old guard media was not uh, really uh, really traversing right that much. Um, so so yeah, a few of these innovations um, uh, came uh, from the tools uh, of A-B testing and optimization, which is basically the process of taking multiple different headlines uh, from a particular article or a piece of content, whatever content that is, uh, video or anything, and split testing it and running it against uh, an audience. So you you write, you know, this is the classic um, Upworthy example slash Buzz, BuzzFeed example because they both kind of innovated in this space around the same time. But you take, you know, you write 25 different versions of a headline for a piece of uh, content, and then you test which one of those 25 pieces of content will, or a headline, <laughs> which, which one of those 25 uh, headlines will actually receive the most engagement. Um, and what happened <laughs> was that you found these very strange sort of new emotional trigger statements attached to uh, every single headline, which is you'll be shocked to see, uh, you know, um, mm. X crushes Y. Um, this, you know, this gives you goosebumps. Um, and this is around, you know, 2016, 2017, where this really came to a head. Um, uh, and or, or you know, this is like the listicle time uh, time frame also, the internet in which it felt, you know, it's like yeah, the result will shock app. you. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, um, which is a very, you know, very interesting moment um, for, 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 I think, our collective consciousness on the internet because we're, everyone was suddenly assaulted by this stuff. It was like, um, you know, we, we suddenly had this new viral vulnerability that we were, we were all, you know, none of us knew how to respond to is, you know, talking about memes again. It's like, these were, these were memes that we didn't have, uh, we didn't have defenses for. So everyone clicked on them. Everyone, uh, you know, got outraged by them and, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. overwhelmed by them for a short period. And real quick for the audience, like that is exact that AB testing system that Tobias just mentioned is evolutionary theory right there where you're taking, you know, it's basically exactly how survival of the fittest works. And they're running it through these, these algorithms just for this one title of this one article. And then, you know, whatever it, it's basically the, what is the least shitty title for that article that will get the most right. uh, in terms of that will get the most of uh, viewers least that's how I refer to evolution is, is totally. Yeah. How, yeah, how, how can we make this most, this, this, uh, this particular, uh, yeah. uh, this particular piece of content, most mimetically viral, you know, how can yes. we make it, how yeah. can we select for the best, ver you know, the most, uh, the most successful version of this meme, um, and, and how it, how it transits. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and it, you know, it's very, very interesting to look at how, and you can watch this, this kind of steady stream of these, of these various trends explode across the internet. And then you can watch also culturally us develop kind of antibodies to some of these memes be like, oh, wait, no, I can't, 
I won't be shocked to see what that actually, you know, what that actually uh, says at the end. Was, like, this, list, this listicle is garbage, right? And so we, we actually slowly began to develop these kind of cognitive antibodies to these, uh, to these, these mimetic, uh, some, some of the worst ones, right? And we're, st we're still prone to a lot of them, but some of the worst ones we began to develop some uh, cognitive Most obvious ones, we're, we've developed at least a little bit of resistance. Yeah, <laughs> totally, easy. totally. And yeah. I, what I will say is that one of the ones that we have not yet really developed proper resistance to, I think, um, and I, I'm hoping this, this, this changes, but in recent years, uh, we're still very, very prone to responding to outrageous headlines and headlines that, that are morally and emotionally um, uh, condemning and problematic and that speak to our, our, our moral foundations in a very, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a very problematic way. So we, we do find ourselves, you know, especially when it's, when it's, uh, hating on the political party, uh, opposite of us and, um, you know, whatever kind of, uh, identity group that we're in and the, the opposition group, you know, that we, we still strong, uh, respond very, very strongly to these and we have not yet developed a proper cultural antibodies mm. antibodies to them. Okay. Well, let's get into that. Let's talk about the negative Moloch-based incentive structures that now exist in journalism. So what led to the mass loss of faith in journalistic systems? You know, how did social media yeah. break the news? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in, we all grew up, I think, in a, you know, news-based environment that tended to privilege facts over falsehoods and that tended to, uh, you know, it felt it felt very trustworthy historically, you know. Like I, you know, grew up with the with Dan Rather on TV or uh, Walter Cronkite or some of these these old gray anchors that you're like, oh, that guy, yeah. he's he's telling the truth. And there's there's this there's this media enterprise behind him that is that has our best interest in mind, right? The New York Times, the uh, you know these these kind of old old guard journalistic enterprises that really did have, uh, you know, our our best interests in mind collectively, um, and so. The problem is, and I think we realized this growing up, I certainly didn't, was that these are businesses that require attention in order to sell advertising to operate and, um, or subscriptions also, but, but, you know, advertising is a big portion of that. And so if they're not getting the attention that allows for them to continue, then they will die. And if they don't die, they will actually become desperate and try to capture our attention in other ways. And um, that is a that is an unfortunate truth that that you know if if a if a news organization is um, is 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 really struggling economically, then they will start to bend their coverage to try to um, attract more readers and more uh, viewers and uh, uh, more uh, you know just more more ad advertising revenue as a, as a way to survive and so um you know historically these media enterprises were so profitable and they were extremely extremely profitable that they did not need to worry about that nearly as much there was a lot more kind of neutrality in reporting and a lot of more ease in the editorial lens and not as much competitive pressure for them to uh to exist in this you know in this this you know evolutionary landscape right mm -hmm. um but all of a sudden with social media there was huge competitive pressure right they actually began to kind of suffer and uh and and struggle um so a lot of news organizations began to uh shift their coverage and i was uh during uh 2016 i was working as a consultant for one of the nation's largest news organizations while simultaneously doing A-B testing on Facebook for another company. And I was watching this very strange thing happen where I was like, oh, cool. Like I can see how 
this new guard media, these like new media enterprises are just eating the lunch of these, this traditional uh, news organization. I could watch the traditional news organization make really terrible uh, editorial decisions and really terrible advertising decisions in order to try to stay alive during that time. And so, um, I, yeah, watched some very, uh, some really, I'm, I wouldn't call it shady, but I would call it, um, very, uh, uh, low quality decisions that, that were being made um, at this old, right. very trusted center of the centrist news organization that would, uh, you know, want you know, reach like a hundred million, uh, or it was like a hundred, a uh, hundred million uh, Americans uh, uh, over the course of, uh, you know, on a monthly basis. And they were just, they were, they were dying. They were getting slaughtered by Facebook. And as a result, they actually started changing the editorial tenor and started cutting new staff, started cutting, uh, uh, you know, of cutting fact checking all of these things that were really important for sense making in a society i watched them actually change their coverage and that was really disheartening and scary because what was being replaced by was basically clickbait right during that moment so uh that that's not a great trade <laughs> that's not a great trade-off ultimately uh for our attention we don't you know we require good journalists and we require good reporting and to watch that happen in real time was really scary and, and you refer to a few things that journalism the journalistic enterprises started to do things like uh, uh, using selective facts to cater to attention, basically doing their self-selection internally, being like, ah, let's ignore that because that's boring and blah, blah, blah. And then there's also, uh, you referred to groupthink, you know, saving costs by reporting what other outlets are reporting and, you know, basically being like, okay, well, the Atlantic reported it, so I'm going to report it and then someone else does and we have to spin out, right? Yeah. Uh, and then also pandering to, to in sponsored media and, and creating you know, basically creating media based off of how they get, have their incentive structures built internally, financially. Right, right, right. Yeah, and and there's this there's this other thing that I thought I think is really strange and interesting that happened, which was that you know, uh, and I don't think most people know how fundamentally journalism has turned inside out as a result of social media. Um, but one of the cheapest and easiest ways to get uh, clicks on a story as a as a as a journalist or as in, you know, a newspaper or as a, uh, a media company is to look for what's trending online and make a story about that. Uh, and if you think about the incentives for things to go viral and this kind of broader media landscape that we're a part of right now. So, so you can just go on to Twitter and see what people are angry about and you can write a story about that. And with the headline, people are angry about X on Twitter. Well, I guess you have to say X now. So <laughs> people are angry about X on X. Um, but uh, uh, people are angry about something on X. And that headline itself will become, that's like automatic guaranteed traffic. Because people, like even if it's a tiny number of people that are actually angry about that particular thing, um, that becomes a, a guaranteed way to get clicks. Because people, the people that are angry that people are angry about it will click on it and be like, why are people angry about this? Um, and so any kind of small infraction uh, or small cultural issue can become a, uh, a, a you know, a, a story, a, you know, right. highly trafficked story, um, um, an outraged story, for instance, um, which which becomes this really the significant signal processing issue for us, because what we're seeing a lot of the time in traditional media and traditional media that is relying on social media is these tiny infraction points in society becoming much, much larger issues than they really are. So, and when we see, you know, when we see some, some small threat or some small conflict become much larger than it is in real life, 
um, then we assume that the world is going a little bit crazy, right? We're like, mm -hmm. how is it possible that all these people are angry about this absurd thing? And the reality is not that many people are actually angry about this absurd small thing. Uh, it's not the case. <laughs> you're just getting a, this, right. this, this over, uh, you're over in, you're getting this overexposure to this one uh, small thing because it actually uh, generates uh, outrage and engagement. All right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to create a clip from this exact part of our conversation and I'm going to title it why people are angry about journalism and I'm going to give it like a really uh uh thought uh you know kind of inflaming uh title card image right all right and all right if you're watching this right now on social media and you're you got you came here because of the algorithm congratulations uh you uh we did our job <laughs> um nice all right all right we're going to try that so and then there's another uh two things that you refer to which is context creep and context collapse and how those relate to journalism. What are those two things? Uh, what are those two results that we see in terms of like truth and trying to like actually report on truth uh, in, in terms of the social media era? Yeah, totally. So, you know, when, when we push real life into any box of text, whether it's a, a traditional news story um, or if it's a, you know, a, a character delimited tweet, um, we, we are actually changing that events and we are you know we're pushing it into a tiny a smaller container that does not rep is not fully representative of the real world so um on twitter unfortunately and on facebook as well uh this this historically has an instagram is, is this also on a regular basis um you strip out a lot of the nuance and the context and the richness of that actual event and you know life on its own is quite messy right life is life is is you know, full of ambiguous, weird things that happen on a regular basis. Um, but, uh, but when you, when you push into social media, you end up, you end up removing a lot of the, the real important richness and, uh, and, you know, a deeper information, deeper context that, uh, that was present in that event. So, um, a great example of this was the, um, gosh, what year was this? this is, I believe 2019 when um, uh, there were the there 2019 protests in Washington. Covington High. Uh, Covington Catholic. Yeah, exactly. Covington when Catholic. there was a, a group of, of kids from Covington Catholic school, school who were uh, Trump supporters that were at a, a rally. And they there was this clip that circulated on social media of these kids basically doing a, a chant uh, in front of a Native American man and uh that went wildly viral and you know if you look at it from a particular angle it looks bad it looks really bad right you watch it watch the, this video for just a just a, a you know a 60 second clip and you're like oh my gosh these kids are horrible they're just like taunting this this poor old native american man um but it turns out in the actual play-by-play -play of that moment the native american man was walking he walked into this this conflict between uh, this, this, uh, this, this shouting match that happened. These kids were there at a school rally or they were there with their school for a rally, a political rally. And they were all, you know, all Republican kids, but, um, uh, uh there was even, even in, in, in post interviews, they said, we were just, we just bought the Trump hats cause we thought it would be funny. It's like right. what a couple of them had said. So they're all wearing right. Trump hats, right. For one reason right. or another. Right. Right. So, uh, so, and they were, they were shouted at by, uh, another group of protesters in the, 
moments leading up to that. So there's this like altercation between two different groups of protesters that were happening right there. I think there were the, the black Israelites or something like that. I forget the actual name of the other group that was there, but it was just, you know, one of these weird moments that, that happens at a protest when there's just people doing weird stuff, right? People yell at each other. People are really heated. They do funny, strange things. And, you know, reality is very forgiving. And, you know, in real life, like people actually are not likely to do terrible things to one another uh, uh, most of the time in real life, right? And that resolved fine. It wasn't actually an issue. But this one clip of these kids chanting uh, in front of this Native American man, this one kid, just particularly this one kid that's like, is basically just smiling and glaring at the Native American man. After the Native American man came up to him, Nathan Phillips, I believe was his name, he came up to this, this, this group and was like banging on his drum in front of this and the kids were just like smiling and staring at him. Um, it's like a smirk. It's like a, you know, it's like kind of like a, a, a pregnant kind of like smirk at this, at this guy. And if you, if you see just that clip, um, with no other context about what happened before, yeah, you find it like weird and kind of awkward and strange, but what happens next, so that's context collapse when there's like, there's no other context for actually what's happening in that moment. It's been stripped away. So you only see this one tiny little kind of still frame from this broader, um, this broader film of life causing a violent reaction. If, by right. the way, so you know, like there's people like trying to like, well, we want their names. We want their address. Totally. Hunt these kids down. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. It was crazy at what people were doing. Online. And that was a result of context creep, which is what other people could see that clip. They could, you know, tap into their own emotional outrage based on the reaction, their interpretation of that clip and add context on top of it being like, this is an example of Trump's America where this tiny, this neo-Nazi kid can go out there and, you know, just, just, just you know, have this terrible look on his face and, and, and look at this, this poor native American man. And, um, and so people were adding their, this, this kind of this, you know, this additional context on top of the actual event itself without, without really knowing what was going on. And those, those tweets went further viral and those tweets went further viral. Um, and people kept on adding on their own kind of disgusted and outraged takes on top of it. And so, and once enough people are angry about something, Right. There's this knock on effect in which people there's this, you know, there's this scissor statement, right? Which is where people see it in one way and they're like, oh, this is this. You're right. This is a horrible example of what's wrong with society. And uh, and people people pile on. It becomes kind of the shibboleth in which other people are like, oh, yeah, you know what? Absolutely. This was this is horrible. It was horrific. I cannot believe they did that. And it's a forcing function for other people to pick sides on that topic, too. So if it becomes enough of an issue that everyone will need to have an opinion about this, about this thing that was you know, has, has been so divorced from the primary event ultimately. Yep. Uh, and that's really problematic. That's, that's really not good for a society. And again, reality is actually very forgiving, right? These, these, everyone walked away from that event. Fine. Right. Like no one had uh, emotional scarring from it in the moment. Um, it was this strange machine that we plugged that event into and turned it into this grotesque uh, exaggeration of what it was. And the result was this, this very just horrible outcome for everyone observing it, right? So much outrage and so much sadness and so much uh, hand-wringing and, and disgust and frustration about what this represented. And the truth is it didn't represent anything. It really didn't. And that's it's a chaotic moment. <laughs> it's, it's like the, it's like the dress uh, that you mentioned in the book. Yeah. It's blue or uh, gold and everyone sees it differently and just causes chaos because everyone's like, you know, the, the, all the whole system collapses into left or right, right? You know, right? Yeah, the dress the is a great example. example. The, yeah. dress, the dress is, I think, a, a perfect example of this. So, so the dress is a, a concrete example of a scissor statement, right? Which is something that is inherently ambiguous 
So it's actually very difficult. Like you can't get a consensus amongst the general population about whether or not the, the dress is uh, uh, black and blue or, or white and gold, right? You can't actually get a consensus because of the way that our eyes um, are wired, the ways that our, our, our brain is wired. Like our, we have different brains and our brains observe colors in slightly different ways. And the result was this, this thing that was inherently ambiguous, but that, that created tremendous confidence that inspired deep confidence in people's perceptions. And that is what scissor statements do. They are, they are strong statements that, that, that push us into opposing groups on a particular issue, uh, instantaneously and automatically. And that was a social media is fantastic at generating and serving us on a regular basis. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about free speech, uh, <laughs> the easiest uh, of all of the things uh, for us to discuss today and uh minority opinions specifically um minority opinions are uh, you dedicate a really interesting part of your book to about it you talk a lot about covid-19 you talk about the whatsapp group that you ended up moderating and had to deal with really uh, volatile minority opinions that ended up causing uh, causing issues, not only throughout your WhatsApp group, but throughout through society and, and social media, uh, spurs these kinds of opinions forward because of just the way they're structured, the way they tap into our, our, uh, our limbic systems, if you will. Um, you know, how do we, was, was John Stuart Mill, you know, you refer to him, was he correct? Should we allow I, any ideology, any speech to pass through all standards of verification? Are we giving plat, is it okay to give platforms to toxic ideology um you know or is there any kind of uh is there any standard here that we should hold to the way that we do the free speech in the social media era yeah so we really are at this crisis point in terms of free speech because the way that the the modern media in, uh, system of uh, including social media has been set up is very uh dangerous to a, a functioning society uh, um, and what I mean by that is that historically, um, we've had gatekeepers that were responsible for making sure that certain types of information received were, were disseminated to the larger, uh, larger public. Right. And, and free speech is this really important piece of that, right? Like you actually, we, there's a reason why we have, uh, the, the, the first amendment that the, the, the process of, of our claims impacting another person's claim. And, you know, the, when I make a claim and you can refute that claim, my claim gets better if it's done in good faith, right? That is the point of freedom of speech is actually having these, these points of, of concrete uh, uh, um, um, uh, exchange when, uh, when I'm called out on the issues related to my initial belief, because we are wrong before we are right. And that is part of our, uh, our species. But we have the superpower, which is the ability to see the flaws in other people's arguments better than you see the flaws in our own arguments. So uh, the, the point of freedom of speech is allowing for many people to refute the claims of other people um, uh, writ large. And that, you know, uh, yeah, J.S. Mill, historically, he's, he's said that, you know, you're robbing society writ large of the ability to, um, to refute and understand the problems in an idea if you are shutting down speech. And that was that's very kind of core to the, the American system of, of media dissemination. I think what's missing in a piece of this debate is the recognition that someone somewhere is always making a determination as to what people can say and see. Um, and uh, what I mean by that is that 
you go out of the founding of the Republic, there was always someone involved in the dissemination and propagation of, of a piece of information, whether it's a newspaper editor, uh, you know, whether or not it's a, the, you know, someone uh, at a at a radio station that was, you know, that was determining what could actually be platformed and um, what couldn't. Um, and for a large portion of our history, it was actually also the federal government, in contrast to some of the portions of the First Amendment that we would consider sacred today, right? And that we, you know, we've, we've gone so far on this kind of free speech uh, uh, absolutism these days that we, we look back at, you know, there were censors on television, radio stations, right? right? Deciding what shows could and could not be on the air in the 80s and 90s, right? And I'm not saying that was good, but I'm just saying that like, we've always had someone that's been responsible for determining what can and cannot be uh, seen and said in society. Uh, and we still do. And that's what I want to note here is that even if we, you know, think we're living in this kind of golden age of free speech to some degree, um, we have just transited and passed off those responsibilities largely to algorithms. So uh, the people that used to be responsible for determining what could be said are now actually algorithms that are are responsible for what can and cannot be amplified and um, and what is and is not being amplified. And so I, I think it's much more important to think about social media companies like traditional media companies because they are actually selectively determining what it is, much of the time, what it is we're actually seeing and being exposed to on a regular basis. So, you know, the day that that uh, that Facebook and Twitter stopped reverse chronologically rank ordering their content and started instead doing algorithmic rank ordering, they were actually making strong editorial decisions for a much larger audience than historical newspapers and radio stations and TV stations were actually making, right? They're actually making really powerful editorial decisions, but they're not treated like media companies because uh, of Section 230, which is a, the yeah, Communi Communication oh, Decency Act in the in 1990s that, uh, that um, uh, dictates how we regulate uh, information online. It, it's so fascinating to think about, you know, those forms of censorship or, or information regulation before algorithms was human, right? And because it was human, it was a part of our culture. In one way or another, it was a culturally based uh, algorithm. And then when you add in this this automatic algorithm that you refer to, uh, the, the technical Facebook or Instagram algorithm that evolves instantaneously to always maximize one thing. The amount of attention that the maximum amount of users are on are paying attention to the app, right? To keep that one thing that is always uh, an end of one in our lives, which is what we're paying attention to at any given moment and maximizing that. Uh, that algorithm is now what is controlling the decision making process, and it's it's fascinating. And I, I you mentioned, uh, and, and this really free speech relates heavily to it, uh, the way that our democracy was formed, right? Which it's, it is incredible. You, I love the way you describe. It. It's one of my favorite parts of your book, referring to the democracy as a, almost a self-correcting code that evolves over time, and and it and it changes, and it it does have a lot of issues, obviously, uh, and then also it does have self-corrections. It in, it self-corrected to empower disenfranchised groups that weren't included, you know. But why isn't this code now strong enough or fast enough to withstand in the and survive in the current information system from your perspective? Yeah. So the reason uh, I, I try to take this very macroscopic view of democratic systems uh, as being, you know, self-correcting uh, systems that we all, you know, come to rely upon to help us organize um, in society. But in, in a way, they're, they're giant machines 
democrat uh, democracies are giant machines that we have built in society and we've built built them they run on you know they run on humans <laughs> the code runs on humans right. uh but they're they're big programs that uh that we build to organize our society and they do something very specific they help us take problems take like outrages we see in the world the issues that we're facing in the world and turn them into legislation right so legislation to actually solve those problems does that make sense so we we basically we, we take issues that we see collectively and through this process of of uh voting and and stewardship of people's uh, resources, we actually try to uh, allocate those resources to solving problems um, by uh, through through representation in our government. Um, and so that's that's a really important frame, I think, for for thinking about uh, democracy because the core of it then is is information based is like how we actually are consuming information and seeing the problems that were that were uh, that were that we're exposed to and how we're organizing around those problems. So, you know, Thomas Jefferson famously said that he preferred newspapers to government. And he thought that, that if you just gave people newspapers, that was good enough for them to organize around problems. Newspapers report on a problem, they would get out, people would get outraged and they would collectively come together to solve the problem themselves. And they didn't really need government to do that. They could just do like, you know, small, like New England style councils and just solve the problem themselves. They didn't need government right. to do that. Right. Um, uh, so it, it turns out that, you know, the, the actual media that, that we use to determine what the problems are becomes then the most critical piece of that process, right? Like how, how we observe the outrages in society, how you know, the inputs to the code, essentially, um, uh, you know, how we, how we, uh, see, the, the speed of outrage, the, the, um, the quantity of outrage, and then how we respond to it is really, really important. You know, f f uh, funnily enough, when, uh, when Jefferson got into uh, the presidency, he actually <laughs> did a complete 180 on that perspective and uh, tried to outright ban some newspapers for reporting on him so terribly as a president uh, during that time. So he was rare. He actually, you know, it was, it was a funny, uh, a uh, funny about face in terms of his his uh, um, steadfast uh, uh, um, adherence to the First Amendment, but um, but yeah, the media system has always had flaws. But it is kind of the, this funny paradox of democracy that that the the idea of free speech and the idea of free information flows is re is both core to the uh, core to the democratic democratic process, but it's also uh, it's one of its greatest weaknesses too because if people get angry about the wrong things and if they get so upset at the system itself and they and they and they you know if they get too outraged too quickly um uh and 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 get so upset with the system itself then they can undermine the system itself and this is the problem with with populists and demag demagogues historically with you know kind of every major democracy that's failed in the past has come down to people getting angry that the system was not working for them and then uh and then voting into power someone that uh an authoritarian that basically strips the system of its uh democratic uh, foundations and so that, that is one of the core problems with with democracy and so if you think about it in terms of information system that is running on human code um and the the inputs are the 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 media information that we're consuming on a regular basis like the issues that we're seeing that we're being fed because like I, as myself, you know, I, I have this very limited kind of uh, 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 sphere of visibility into the problems of the world. I rely upon proxies. I reply, rely upon other people to tell me what is wrong with the world. And historically, those people who are journalists, you know, might be some of my friends, might be a smart friend that I have uh, somewhere. But I have a very limited 
purview into what is actually going on in my world. So we all rely upon these proxies to tell us what is actually going on and what are real problems and what are false problems. And so this is one of the core problems with, with misinformation and particularly outraged misinformation, misinformation that's attached to some kind of moral issue, is that if we get exposed to things that are not actually problems, right? And we, we think that things are wrong that are not actually wrong, then we will solve for the wrong problem. We will actually, you know, we'll vote people in the office who will legislate and allocate resources to solving the wrong problem. Um, and so, so democracies are so, so intensely dependent upon good information flows that when they fail, when they start to get into these, these uh, unstable states, when there's too much viral misinformation, democracies are actually really, really fragile in those, in those times. And we are in one of those moments right now, with, particularly with social media, because we, we have this, this, this very unstable system of, uh, of, of you know, amplified mis and disinformation with very few guardrails uh, into in, in how the structure is built. Um, uh, and it, it's not operating at all like the, you know, the, the more stable system that was available to us for the last hundred plus years. It's operating much more like a viral network than a knowledge network. And I can speak to that in a moment, but I think it's really important to note that democracies are dependent upon good information. And if it does have, it has bad information as in false information, then democracies don't function. They actually stop working period. Right. Yeah. You, you mentioned a great point in the book that our democracy uh, was built when information moved at about 55 miles an hour, which is the speed of a person on a horse. And, you know, if you're going to t move at that speed, then the information has a lot of time to be verified as a, it, it needs to be verified or, or uh, to kind of make that distance. And uh, instead of that, now we have uh, speed of light, in, you know, information that's happening all over. And, you know, the, the system, this ancient almost system of self-corrected code that we correcting code that we created isn't holding up to that level of speed right. it seems right. yeah yeah and there, there are these interesting corollaries between speed and uh and accuracy right but actually the, the faster information that we get is usually it, like our first take is usually wrong you know what i mean like if you look at how information transits and there's this in inherent tension for all journalists always which is which is you want to be first but you also don't want to be wrong and that is a core kind of tenet of journalism which is that if you're if you're wrong, you're not first, right? If you mm. if you actually got it wrong, then you're not. Then you haven't actually won. You've actually failed. Um, and uh, so there's this this inherent tension with new information that we receive. And um, and you know the the big one of the big handoffs that happened with the internet and with social media was that the traditional job of journalists, which was a profession that was perfected over the course of a hundred years that involved a whole bunch of checks and balances and processes of verification and corroboration and citation. Um, that has been handed off to us as individuals. And we have no idea what a journalist does. <laughs> like we don't know what they actually do in order to verify and cite good information, good sources when they're actually sharing information onward. Uh, and that has not been shared widely that, that, you know, this is all our responsibility now, largely, and we are not prepared, um, in, in our current form, at least to, uh, to be good stewards of our information flows. So let's get into the next form. Like, let's talk about, okay, the type one planet model. How do we exist for thousands of years in a, you know, using the in technology that we have now, assuming future technologies. Um, and, and a question I had for you uh, is it's kind of like the, the Lord of the Rings metaphor, the ring of power, right? There's so many people that try to use the ring of power 
uh, for good, right? Boromir uh, in the you know is famous for tr saying we could use this, and uh, and it's clear that the Ring of Power could never be used for anything other than evil. And so I wanted to ask you: Is social media a Ring of Power? Is it like a tool of the, the of Moloch? If we're going to go deep into these fun, uh, all these fun names and mythologies, uh, or is it something that can be adapted to? Uh, to better fit the way that our, our civilization needs it to, to, to exist. So if the question is whether or not social media is kind of this inherently problematic force that is going to uh, poison society indefinitely, uh, I, I think that's an interesting question. I, I don't think it is. I think it has uh, tremendous power uh, to actually do good things in the world. Um, and I don't think it is the failure mode of society unless we let it be right i think that you know every major technology goes through as we talked about this period of a dark valley in which we um we learn that it's not as good as we thought and that there's a lot of inherent problems that come from these tools um being deployed across the world so uh yeah no i i think that social media has has great promise and i think that if we make a couple of key changes to how it works we can uh, really utilize its its powers without you know without uh, needing to fling it into Mount Doom, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, so let's talk about those those you said cultural antibodies earlier, and I love that phrase. So yeah. How do we build more cultural antibodies and and you know regulations, coordinations to keep Moloch at bay, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I think that most of it comes down to um, actual design changes at the company level. I think that, you know, there's a lot we can do both as individuals, um, there's a lot we can do as governments. Uh, but I think I think the highest leverage changes do come from the design uh, angle uh, for these tools. Um, now, uh, I can speak to a couple of the uh, the kind of individual things that we can do is, you know, the, the first, which I think is helpful, and then I can go into the platform and then governmental side of things. So. Uh, so yeah, so as individuals, I think, you know, it's really important to recognize that we are stewards of our communities online. We are actually stewards of how our friends see the world. And so it's actually up to us. It really is up to us to, uh, to be very careful with what we share. Um, and, uh, what, what I do uh, on a regular basis is I actually have a pretty substantial set of filters and content blockers that help me. Um, reduce my exposure to highly emotionally uh, uh, intense <laughs> information on a regular basis. Uh, um, and what I mean by that is like, I'm inherently a news junkie. I love new information and my brain constantly defaults to like newyorktimes.com or, uh, you know, this is constantly going to the newsreader. It's like wants to, wants this new information. And I've, I've had to recognize in myself that, uh, that that is not necessary. I do not need to have a constant stream of updates from, uh, from, from the world. Um, I, you know, it's actually not necessary for me to have a happy and healthy life and contribute to society. Um, and so particularly on social media, um, I use a content blocker called one sec, which is great. It's just, it just, it's actually, it's basically a, a content friction point. It causes me to take a deep breath before I enter in to the kind of automatic typing of the, of the, of the, um, app or I'll type in the app or I'll, I'll pull it up on my phone and it will, it takes like five minutes to set up on your phone. It takes two minutes to set up on your on your browser, and it just just forces you to take a deep breath and make sure that you're not uh, you're not impulsively 
tapping into the matrix, right? You're actually just taking a, taking it. You're like, okay, wait, wait, why, why am I doing this? I don't need to do this right now. And it has saved yep. me, you know, it saves me hours and hours a week on a regular basis. So I think that reducing our exposure to triggers like that is actually really important because our brains will default uh, to trying to find that new information. You know, historically for our ancestors, new information was like as rare as sugar. And so it's, a, it's kind of a similar thing. Like new information is very, very, um, is hardwired into us. We want new information. So recognizing that that's kind of like a sugar uh, addiction, right? And like, okay, cool. I can, I can, I can take a breath when I'm uh, walking into these tools. Really important. Um, also recognizing that the newest stuff that you see online, like the fastest spreading information, is less likely to be true. It's actually less likely to be accurate. Like the longer you have for information to exist, the longer people have to verify its accuracy. And you saw a bunch of this quite recently with the. Um, the, the terrorist attacks in Israel, where a whole bunch of the stuff that you saw on uh, spreading on X was was actually false. Uh, the earliest stuff was false. It was quite horrific, uh, no doubt. Like this, the many many horrific things that were present that didn't that weren't that were actually not part of some of that initial reporting as well. So, but the the, the fastest information tends to be uh, less accurate, more emotional, and more lacking context. So, um, so really important to just recognize that like, you don't, you don't need to participate in the spectacle in order to be well-informed you get an, an, if you get your news a day after it happens, you're actually much more likely to get good information than if you get it the exact moment that it happens, even though that urgency is present for us. We want to be first and we want to share that with our friends and we want to talk about it with our friends, but that is not, um, that is not actually a great, uh, a great way to sense make in the world. Like the longer we have to, uh, for people to verify, corroborate, check claims, that is actually the better, um, the better way of, 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 of recognizing good, good information. So, um, so that's like one cultural antibody that I think we really do need to start to absorb. Right. And I'll have you, I'll have you email me all the other tools that you use, uh, or anything like that. And I'll include them in the show notes Great. Um, for people to check out. Awesome. That's perfect. perfect. Yeah. So, uh, on the government side, there's actually a good piece of legislation that's working its way through Congress right now called the platform accountability and transparency act PATA, uh, which is, um, an effort by uh, by a bunch of academics and civil society to basically make the harms of social media platforms visible to the wider world. So um, there are these, uh, it's basically a, a, a set of regulations that would make it um, mandatory for social media companies to share some of the algorithmic outputs of their tools, right? The same way that their researchers were able to jump into Twitter and do a lot of research in the last um, the last five years or so, um, they couldn't really do that on Facebook. There was a couple of, uh, small, uh, small groups that were able to access Facebook's data, but most companies were not able to access, uh, the, the actual harms of what these algorithms are producing and who is saying what, and what is getting spread, uh, far and wide. And so actually having, uh, access and having a government mandate to get, uh, access to, to, to the, um, some of the transparent, um, uh, some of the APIs on the back end and what is actually happening would go a long way. And, you know, I think these platforms are actually quite against that in general because they know that it's a major liability for them. But that is the kind of regulation that we need that would actually, I think, make a huge difference because it would force these companies to uh, to try to reduce their uh, uh, their harms because they know they're going to be visible because historically they have not been visible. They've actually been largely cut off from public view. Right? A lot of the, the worst stuff that has happened is not visible to us because social media is so opaque and these companies are sitting on you know, such, quanti such large quantities of data that they're not sharing um, with the world. 
Um, I understand from a business perspective why they would not want to do that, but that is one of these moments where we, in order to keep Moloch at bay, we need government regulation that allows for these harms to be actually more uh, more visible to the rest of us. Um, and that would actually change the incentives internally at these companies to reduce some of those harms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then at the platform level, there's actually a whole bunch of design incentives and changes that we can make that I think would dramatically improve these tools. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly when it comes to content verification and content management, you know, one of the biggest issues with the last, uh, you know, four or five years of, uh, content management online is that a lot of these content decisions about what we see and don't see come from top down, right? A lot of people, a lot of these companies are making calls as to what we can and cannot see on these platforms. You have a whole bunch of content moderators that are flagging stuff for being offensive, for being, um, for being, uh, politically motivated, for being problematic or untrue. And, you know, each one of those uh, demotions or takedowns that happens, that happens in kind of a gray area that, you know, maybe was accurate or maybe wasn't totally accurate. And just one of the, any one of those kind of, uh, this happened a lot around COVID, COVID information or COVID misinformation at the time. Um, when, when that happens and they're wrong, when it's like a top, top down content decision, um, there's this explosion of, of, uh, you know, outrage that comes around that because people are like, I am being censored. And there's this, this feeling of frustration and desperation and anguish and anger and outrage at the fact that they're, you know, they were saying something that they feel is important that's protecting their community and trying to, you know, trying to improve the world. And they have been actually just shut down by this, you know, faceless, uh, algorithm, uh, that they have no recourse against. And um, I think that's not the best way to do this. I think we need better bottom-up tools of verification. Um, and you know, it, there are actual there 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 are some tools that are already being deployed. Some like zygotes of these tools um, are basically bottom-up fact-checking tools that are embedded in the way that these tools are the way that social media is designed. So X has this this feature called Community Notes, which I think is a fantastic uh, fact-checking feature. It's community-driven fact-checking, which allows for a whole bunch of people to uh to enter in you can you can enroll in the community notes program and basically you act as sort of like a wikipedia style moderator of what it is uh that of of an accurate piece of information you can call it out. it's like they have a whole range of things that you can call out it's like is this well cited is this um coming from primary source is this something that uh is is uh taking something out of context like and you can offer up your um your individual uh, commentary it's not the same thing as basically like snitching on someone for doing something against the rules it's actually off it's offering up a, a alternate perspective and encouraging other users to be more accurate in their claims. So, um, you know, everyone from Biden to uh, uh, the Ayatollah in Iran to Elon Musk has been community noted. And each one of those tends to actually improve our sense making around those viral tweets. And so for the most viral content, as is going viral, the ability to uh, community note this stuff and make it more accurate in real time is incredibly important. I think that we desperately need more systems like that deployed across our social media platforms because that like the this the the spread of viral misinformation again it shouldn't be these kind of these top-down edicts around things and people should have recourse um and i'm you know i'm i'm heartened by things like the uh the uh, uh the oversight board at facebook which actually does go through and try to review some of these posts and try to give people recourse in that process 
Um, but but really, I think the 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 way to solve these, this problem is to make social media more like Wikipedia, which is give it a, a functional way of 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 claims and refutations that are designed and embedded into the code, so that we actually have as individual users the ability to uh, to comment and improve on the shared. Uh, information that we're receiving and uh, and and getting confused by and uh, and, uh, and and you know giving our own input on. I think that's a hugely important piece of the, of the puzzle. I love that you brought up community notes. That's it is a it, you know for the shit show that X is turning into in many ways. There you know it's going through an evolutionary process and you know uh, it, it's it is changing very quickly. It's become a more agile group and and they're able to kind of go through this process of iteration and failure at a much faster rate than we've seen from other social media companies. So it's going to be interesting to see where they are, you know, even a year from now. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm hopeful and not to comment too much on the current current debates, but I, I do think that Elon does uh, does need to, you know, reprioritize uh, these these people that are focusing on missing disinformation in, in these integrity teams, because there are some really, you know, they, there's there's a huge amount of damage that can come in the in the meantime when a lot of these teams are uh, are not present in the company, especially in yep. you know, advance of 2024, and particularly when it comes to generative AI, because there's so many new opportunities coming with generative AI to uh, to confuse us widely. And so I think that that you know if if we if we're thinking about the issues related to AI, they almost all relate. To and I'm, I'm saying I'm not saying like all of them, but almost I think all of the most dangerous near-term issues relate to how information spreads on social media as a result of these tools. So, fixing social media and making sure that we have good, verified systems of of, of getting accurate information in a time when you can generate any image of anything or any video or any voice of anyone doing anything that's going to be incredibly important um, to make sure that we have high fidelity information in a functioning democracy. Man, I feel like we are watching a storm coming in for the next election. It is yeah. going to flex every single part of our democracy yeah. um, this election. And and I'm so thankful to have someone like you. I, I want to I, I sincerely hope that I'm going to be like considered super lucky to have gotten you on this show because I can see that uh, you are an incredible communicator. The way that you articulate these complex ideas is fantastic. The book is fantastic. Um, and I think we need your perspectives genuinely for this upcoming election. And people need to understand what it is that's happening to their brains when they go on social media, how they can prevent it, how they can give it a day, you know, if there's an event and and those kinds of things to to correct their own behavior. Um, and then also we got yeah, we got to move quickly in terms of these changes that are going to happen to the platforms ahead of this this storm that's about to hit our country it's going to be crazy um tobias thank you so much man you are amazing i really appreciate your time today and uh i i hope we can stay connected in the future um it was excellent talk thank you so much robert this was awesome really enjoyed the conversation